Hey everyone and welcome to the service. We're really glad that you've tuned in with us today. We're excited to gather around God's word together. But before we do that, I just needed to bring some things to your attention. On Friday, we sent out an update video from our elders just with some new recommendations in light of the rising COVID numbers in East London. If you missed the video, you can find it on our Facebook page. And we would just love you to have a look at that and to make an informed decision before joining us for any of our in-person gatherings in the month of December. We are still proceeding with church services for the time being and we are continuing to plan for our carols and Christmas services. You can sign up for them via our website, via the Church Centre app or via the link on screen. We would love to have you with us. We will continue to monitor the situation in our city closely and we will keep you posted if we choose to cancel those gatherings. However, no matter what happens with the in-person services, the online services will continue and we will continue to gather on God's word together and we will continue to celebrate him this Christmas season. That's it from me for today. I'm going to hand over to Sharon and Tracy if you want to bring us an update on behalf of our Loving Out Ministries that we've been involved in during this pandemic and then we'll dive into the sermon together. Have a great Sunday. Hi Church, Sharon and I are here to give you a brief update on the SPC values of loving in and loving out. Let's start with loving in. As some of you will know, we have an SPC pantry where we distribute food parcels to people within our church that are in need. These parcels are available to everybody who has a need. You just need to reach out to the church office. Um, before lockdown, we would encourage you to bring the ingredients to the church, but we've changed slightly. We are online now, we've got with the times and we've gone techno wise. Um, and now we ask for contributions, financial contributions, and that does have a very good spin-off effect. It helps us meet a individual need as and when it arises. So if you have a, have a need, reach out to the church. Somebody from a pastoral team will get hold of you, but the SBC pantry is alive and well. Then loving out, um, some of you will also know, we have been partnering with Nahoon Methodist Church and St. Michael's Anglican Church in the Nahoon community in an organization called Nahoon Community Outreach, NCO. And we've been having a great deal of success. We have targeted or aimed for the men and women on our streets that are looking for work, who are unemployed. And there are a number of ways that we've been helping them under the leadership of Joshua. Lots of exciting things have been happening. We've reached a load of families over lockdown and we've taken the gospel to a lot of people who had never heard of Jesus before. I'm going to hand over to Sharon and she will explain a bit of detail on NCO and give you some ideas of where you can help if you feel led to do so. Uh, hello everyone. Um, we basically want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. And I found this um, verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7, and it says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. And that's what we want to do. So um, from our side, the soup army is what we do on a Tuesday. Um, last year, this uh, started up, or the beginning of this year, this started up very well and was running three days a week. At the moment, we're down to one day a week. This takes place at St. Michael's uh, church in their kitchen using their facilities and um, it comprises making soup, preparing of soup. This can be done in two ways. You can make it at home and put it into containers. Ice cream containers are great um, and frozen or brought to the church uh, kitchens and put in their deep freezers. Sterling and Nahoon and uh, St. Michael's all have deep freezers where soup can be kept or it can be brought fresh to the church and served directly there. We warm the soup up and then um, place it into containers that is taken outside for serving to the guys and um, then washing up and leaving the kitchen tidy afterwards. The actual serving um, is also, part of that is also um, Bryce and Africa from our staff um, bring a word and minister to them, praying for the guys uh, before they come and uh, receive their meal. They are sanitized, they have to wear masks, so everything is in order. We would love for you to be able to join and be part of that, especially in the new year, when we'll be looking to running more than just one day um, a week. And then um, the, the second part of this is meal packing. We do this also at St. Michael's on a Thursday from 10 o'clock. The, the parcels consist of a cup of rice, a, a half a cup of soya mince, and a quarter cup of soup mix. 
This is heat sealed into packets and distributed by Josh at various points around the city. Um, this is really uh, a life-saving thing for families because these people are able to take the food home to their families where they are able to make a stew and it's really quite nourishing. All I'm asking is on a Thursday for 30 minutes to two hours of your time, it really doesn't matter. Whatever time you have, pop in, join the gang. I can guarantee that you will leave with a blessing. So um, yeah, just be available. Thank you. So everyone, if you feel led to help, there's some forms at the back of the church where you can sign up and just put your area that you would like to help. If you want to help financially, it gets paid into a FNB bank account. The details are on the forms. Just use the reference either pantry if you'd like to love in or NCO if you'd like to love out. And we would love to have you on board. We're having a great time and I'm sure Jesus is very pleased. Welcome to our Sunday online service and I'm going to be reading from 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 to 8 as we carry on with part 3 of our new series through 2 Peter called Priceless. So let's read together from verse 1, chapter 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, here's our text for today, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they, give you, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So today we've come to a turning point in this letter. Peter says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. In other words, in the light of all that I've just said, or in the light of all that God has done for you, you start doing something for God. Now, it's so important, again, that we see how Peter is helping these Christians be motivated to live a godly life. It's very important, and he does it in a compact yet profound way. But he shows them that we have to see that God has done something for us first so that we can now start doing something for God. And I want to remind everyone listening today that this is what it means to be a Christian. It's not that you do certain things that make you a Christian. It's that God has done something in you first. And it's almost too glorious to explain and unpack today. But you've received a faith of equal standing with the 12 apostles as a gift of God. It's not of yourselves, as Paul said, lest any man should boast. But you've received this gift of faith. And through this gift of faith, a righteous standing before God. It is by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as verse 1 says. And this has all happened because Christ's divine power has been at work in you, believer, granting you all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Christ calling you to himself by his own glory and excellence and giving you his great and precious promises. Friends, that's what we looked at last week. This salvation that you have through faith in Jesus is too glorious almost to explain. And I hope today, as we've navigated these last or previous two weeks, you feel encouraged 
and you feel empowered because that's what Peter wants these believers to see. They have received a priceless faith in Jesus Christ and in this faith and its reception, all that is necessary for life and godliness has been given to us. So, in other words, we have been enabled to live a radically changed life as believers in Jesus through what God has done in us. And it comes through in verse 4. It says, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It is not possible. It's not saying it's automatic. It's not possible that you can start to become a partaker of the divine nature. You can start looking like God. You can start living a godly life because of what God has done in you already through Christ and your faith in Him. It's totally different to the world. The world is stuck in its corruption due to sinful desire. No, no, no. That's not the Christian. Christian has got a whole new nature, a whole new empowering with great precious and great promises that are theirs and that are yes and amen in Jesus. This is who a Christian is, a radically transformed inner person. And it's all through the work of God. Ah, in order that they can start doing something for God. They can, they can now be changed. And friends, this change is radical and it's called the godly life. We can now start to live for God. And that's why Peter says, hey, you've just heard what God has done for you. Now you, for this very reason, make every effort, now that you've got this faith, make every effort to add or supply, or the Greek means bring alongside these things to your faith. And he gives a long list as we read this morning. See, we've, read, we've already got this faith. We've got it. God has given it to us as a gift. Ah, but we have to act tend to it if it's going to achieve its transforming power in us and this is what Peter's interested in and it leads me to my first point today and it's such an important point it's the perfect balance of scripture note the perfect balance of scripture here you see I want to remind us today that salvation is supremely balanced what do I mean by that I mean this is that the salvation that we have in Christ as presented in scripture, dignifies both the will of God in salvation and our will needing to partner with his to work it out. God's will and our will are both dignified in scripture's unpacking of the salvation in Christ. God's will, according to scripture, does not cancel out our will. Our will does not cancel out God's will. No, no, no. The beauty of the balance of scripture is the way it unpacks this great salvation is it dignifies both. Now, why is that important this morning? Well, because there are dangers facing anybody listening today who is motivated and interested in applying this godly life, or applying what they received in Jesus to live out a godly life. When you want to try and apply this Christian faith, you're going to face two dangers. And they're the dangers of two extremes. The first extreme is this, is that we can go into the extreme of making the Christian faith everything about what we have to do in it. Our workload. In other words, the danger that we face is we can find ourselves falling into a performance-based religion. And you must be careful of this, particularly if you have a certain kind of personality or if you come from a certain kind of teaching background or church background, is that there can be an overstressing of what we have to do for God. And if you are that kind of person who has the propensity, you would love to start 2 Peter with verse 5 in chapter 1. I mean, you would this, this would be your favorite verse. You'd say, oh yes, verse 5 says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You'll find people who tend to emphasize or overemphasize what we have to do for God. They love 1 Peter 1 verse 5. In other words, you have the risk of moving into the extreme of simply making the Christian faith about your workload before God. And based on how you meet that workload, you can feel good in his presence or you'll feel guilty. And friends, this is what is called legalism. And it goes to the point of really making the Christian merely something that he or she does. I, I, I live a moral life. I go to church, I read my Bible, that becomes the essence of what we have to do for God in order to feel good before Him. 
received by him, in other words. But that's the one extreme you must avoid. And it's in all of us. But the second extreme is in all of us too. And I would probably say this is probably the bigger danger in our generation today, and the younger generation particularly, is the extreme of making the Christian faith everything about what God has done for us. So the first is, was a kind of performance-based relationship with God, where you have to you stress everything that God that you have to do for God. That's in it. Uh, but the second extreme is you you uh, make everything the Christian faith all about what God has done for us, and you stop there. In other words, you don't have to do anything in this life because God has done everything for you. I'll go further and say, in other words, it does not matter how you live because God's already given everything that you need. Um, he's done it all for you. So, in other words, this way of looking at the Christian faith promotes passivity. If Christ has forgiven all your sins, and if you're already a citizen in heaven, and you already have been given eternal life and assurance of salvation, well, it doesn't matter. God's done it all for you. You can just relax and do what you like, because how you live isn't going to change your position in Christ, and therefore, why bother? Why bother living any differently? Oh, no, no, this is what is called antinomianism, or anti-law, or licentiousness. And I want to say today, both are wrong. You see, this extreme of, of making the Christian faith everything about what God has done for us and stopping there, it does great damage and credibility to the Christian faith, and particularly to the name of Jesus in the world. Because you see, a person who lives like that, who lives in this antinomian way, is a person who doesn't look any different to the world because they're not motivated looking different to the world because it doesn't matter if they if they look like the world um, because God's done everything for them and so you need to realize my friends how you live affects God's reputation in this world particularly Christ's how do we avoid these two extremes that can happen as we seek to apply and live out our Christian faith well the way you do it is you let the Bible come to you just as it is. In other words, why are we taking our time to do this expository preaching through Second Peter? What do I mean by that? It is preaching that follows the flow of the original writer's thoughts and arguments in the way that they wanted to relay their message to the people they were writing to and ultimately to us. You see, it brings out the scripture's meaning. It allows scripture to speak for itself and if you will allow scripture to speak for itself in your life, in other words, you let it come to you as it's coming to you. You're not chopping and changing and jumping and just, you know, reading this little scripture, that little scripture. You will take it as its flow. You read it in large chunks. You will find it comes to you in a supremely balanced way. It will keep you from erring on becoming a performance-based Christian and will stop you from becoming a passive Christian. You see, this is what we're needing in our day and age. And that's why we're taking our time to preach through Second Peter in this way. And that's why it's so important you keep up with the sermons. Because Peter is writing step by step. He's got a strategy, a spirit-inspired strategy, and a spirit-inspired message for you and me. And we have to let that message come to us as it is. In order if we are going to prevent this weird sort of imbalance that can happen in the life of the Christian. And so, friends, today we are to see the glory of what Christ has done in us and what this faith has ushered into our lives in Jesus. We are to start there, but we're not to stay there. Oh, it's for a purpose. We've not only just received this glorious, priceless position, but this position has come to us for a purpose, praise God. And it is to help us to fulfill our original mission as created human beings, which is to be an image bearer of God in this world. God wants us to look like him, sound like him, think like him, and live like him. That's his interest. And so today, friends, if you're going to move forward in your Christian life, if this Christian life is going to mean anything to you, if this faith is going to have any relevance to your life, you have to not only see what God has done for you, but you must see that it has come to you in order to enable you to do something for God. And it's in that order. But both have to be there. It's beautiful tension. It's what Nehemiah talks about, the joy of the Lord being your strength. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. 
What does it mean? Is that you have this joy in your life that you can see what God has done for you. You can see what he's provided for you. He can, you can see your position. You can see all of what Christ has ushered into your life by grace through faith. And it brings you joy. And it's the joy of the Lord. Only the Lord could do this for you. Ah, but what else is? It's the second part. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Strength for what to start living for him. Changing your habits and behaviors and your passions to be conformed to this glorious Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is my strength to change, to keep going in the pursuit of a godly life. And so Peter knows it starts with what God does within us. Yes. Ah, but we must add something, supply something to this faith we have received by grace. Ah, and it's beautiful. The second point today is we are to supply our faith. And the first thing he says with determination, the, the, NIV, the ESV translated virtue. You see, again, a beautiful picture of of how this works or what this looks like in terms of our salvation is it's like a seed and it's planted in your life by God. It's God enabled and God breathed and God summoned, God empowered. And this seed has got all of the power and potential to grow into something glorious, an oak of righteousness. Remember, even in that scripture, as a planting of the Lord, the Lord did it. But even though it's got all its potential and power and, and everything in its nest there as in a kernel form to become this glorious tree, you have to add some things to it in order to allow it to grow. And this is what Peter's interested in. Although we've got the salvation as a package, man, we have to help add certain things to unpack it so that it can reach its full potential and power that God intended it to have in our lives. It needs to grow. And the first thing Peter says, please listen to if those listening today. The first thing he says that we need to supply our faith, need to supply our faith with is determination. Translated virtue in the ESV. Now, virtue means moral energy. I like to call it zeal. And as one commentator put it, Michael Eaton, he says, it's a holy resolution. I like that. It's a holy resolution. That come what may, we will live the godly life. Because my friend, a lot comes at the Christian. And I want to say to you today, this is really what's been on my heart in this message is, I think many, many people, many, many Christian born again believers are in great trouble today. They're disillusioned with their faith. They've packed it up. They've, they've, they've dismissed it as being... Um, irrelevant because they've had an entirely wrong view of how this Christian faith works out in our lives. You see, this is not a passive process today, my friend. What is going to help your faith grow and achieve God's intended purposes for which it was given given to you is you need a determination to live out this godly life. And too many too many have flopped over. Too many have given up with, with hardly any effort. All. Too many of us think faith is many just waiting on God and waiting for Him to do something big, to have some big experience or to, to fall down or to have some sort of spiritual epiphany. No, no, my friend. If you have faith in Christ, you've seen that He's enough to be your Lord and Savior. You have the power right now. You have access to start living a different life. But it won't happen if you don't show some determination to go, I am going to go for it. I am going to give myself to this faith. You see Titus chapter 2 verse 12. It says, Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We have, praise God, preached a doctrine of grace. And hopefully a generation in our church and beyond have heard that it is salvation by grace through faith. But my friends, this grace has been given to you for a purpose. Not only has it given you a position, it has come to you with a purpose and it is to train you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Why does the world look so much like, why does the church look so much like the world today? It's friends because Christians lack this very first attribute of adding a determination to live for Jesus. No, no, you see, as consumers in this world, we want everything to come to us on our terms and particularly to secure our comfort. Anything that's uncomfortable, anything that's an intrusion, anything that's an inconvenience, we don't like. 
Don't let me wait too long for you in a queue. Don't let that service go too long. Don't preach too long. Don't, don't do anything that upsets my sense of comfort in this world. What a low-grade response there is to this glorious salvation. Friends, we must tackle that. We must oppose it in our hearts. We're saying we refuse with a holy resolution to give ourselves half-heartedly or not at all to this glorious gift that God's given us. Friends, we, we need to be determined. You see, I find it so fascinating today that I watch human beings, and I don't even look at myself. We're such passionate, such zealous creatures. We really are. It's not for a lack of the way we're wired that we don't give ourselves to this Christian faith with determination because we give ourselves with determination to so many other things in life, not so? I mean, as Christians, we get so excited about sports and hobbies and food and TV series and social media and exercise and work and the acquiring of knowledge and money. The list is endless. Ah, but when it comes to the things of God, we are so slow to be determined and zealous. Now you must ask yourself the question, why is that? Because it's an important question. And there's a spiritual answer to it. And we must recognize that, man, if we're going to give ourselves this godly life, we're going to face serious opposition. Supernatural opposition and fleshly opposition. Because, friends, there is someone called Satan in this world and the one thing he does not want you to do is progress in the Christian life. Why is it so hard when you decide, man, I'm going to start living for Jesus. This could have happened yesterday. You came to faith in Christ and you're just overwhelmed by his goodness to you, the forgiveness of your sin and the way that he's dignified you by making you a child of God. And you just think, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm so excited about Jesus. And when you start to actually do it, when you actually start to give yourself to this amazing gift of God, you find one of the hardest things you've ever had to do. You're up against resistance, you're up against temptation, you're up against obstacles, and you're up against all these sorts of discouragements in this life. Why do you think so? Because the one thing that Satan fears in the Christian is that they might become more and more like Jesus, the very person he hates. Now, friends, you must think carefully around this. If you don't think spiritually about this, this struggle you're going to be in, you won't get anywhere. You won't get anywhere. And Peter says in his first letter to the same people in chapter 5, verse 8 9, he says, Don't you know, my fellow Christians, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith. He is quite happy for you. Satan is quite happy for you to go along and do anything else. And he'll encourage you with it. Ah, but to give yourself to this godly life, he'll resist you. But there's another problem that you're going to face in your life. It's not just Satan. It's your flesh. It's this fallen sinful nature. You must remember that this great gift of faith that's come into your heart and your belief in Jesus Christ has introduced a dichotomy in you, in a sense. In other words, there's almost two sides to you. The one is you've got this flesh that's fallen. And let me tell you, the flesh is weak when it comes to the things of God. Jesus said in Matthew 26 verse 41, he said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Paul put it like this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Those are almost two sides and are tagging your new nature and the flesh which is still under your old nature. Ha! Huh, and it's pulling. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Friend, don't you think that this godly life is going to be a downhill experience? You are going to have to have a determination. Christ's sweat blood was the pinnacle of his trial. In order to achieve God's will for his life, we must think no differently. Unless you add determination, holy resolve to live a godly life, you will go nowhere in the Christian life. You won't even make a start. And so friends, today might I say, is this any of you? We need to be so watchful, so watchful of ourselves, as Jesus said, and maintain our zeal for God. Because how little there seems to be around us today. Ah, but we're not finished there. You will see that this list of attributes is so beautiful and coherent and complementary. The next thing that we need to add to our faith is knowledge. So, you see, being zealous, having this zeal, this determination in and of itself, it's good but without knowledge, it's dangerous. Proverbs 19 verse 2 says, Desire or zeal without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses the way. You see, 
zeal without knowledge can be destructive to the individual and to the individual Christian and to the people that that individual Christian wants to minister to. And the best example I can give you is myself with running, road running. You know, when I first started road running, I thought I had to do 10Ks within the first week. And it would be within two or three, four weeks, I'd be sick. And I could never get going because I'd always fail ultimately because my body would get sick. I always had too much zeal, but no knowledge. And you see, this, this knowledge in the Greek is lovely. It's gnosis, which means it's a general knowledge. It's a knowledge of all different sorts. It's a knowledge pertaining to life. It's very different to the spiritual or specific knowledge that Peter's been using. Epinoseos was the, was the verb. It's and that was, remember, to come to a full understanding of a specific topic. And he was talking about Jesus. We want to come to a full experiential knowledge from basics of this person, Jesus Christ. No, no. What Peter's saying here is, guys, you need some street cred in your spiritual world. You need some practical know-how in how to live for God. In other words, you need skill in how to get God's word applied to your life. It requires some street cred, some practical um. Uh, intelligent know-how. And friends, this is what Paul said to Timothy. He said, Timothy, you need to skillfully handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. You've got to know how to get it going and flowing in your life. And this is not an easy thing. Living the godly life takes skill. It takes knowledge. It doesn't just need some determination. It needs some street cred, some savviness. And, and I can give you a lot of examples of this. You know, Let's say you, you're determined. You want to start living for Jesus. This sermon's already convinced me. I want to go and read my Bible and pray every day, and I want to grow, grow, grow. Well, you'll find that even in your giving yourself to Scripture reading and prayer, there's a difficulty in keeping that tension. You'll find one will tend to dominate over the other. You'll find there'll be times when prayer just seems to suck up all the time and you get to read your Bible a little bit or not at all. Or you'll be the person that will read their Bible and read so much that you'll hardly ever pray. There's a difficulty. There's a tension. There's, there's a way that you've got to know how to balance it out. I can go further. You have to learn how to distinguish the difference between the, your inner voice, God's voice, and Satan's. You've got to learn which voice is speaking here because not every voice is right. How about learning your, about yourself? You know, we've all got ways that, where we have weaknesses, not so. And we just have tendencies in certain areas to fall, to fall into sin. Is You get to grow in the knowledge of yourself. And one of the ways that you need to know um, or get to know yourself is that yourself talks to you. And you mustn't let that happen. You must talk to yourself because the voice that talks to you from your flesh is not going to help you in the spirit. No, no. You have to learn to shepherd yourself. Friends, I'm just giving you some examples of the kind of knowledge you need to live this godly life. We need to grow in wisdom, intelligent application of God's word, skillful handling of the truth to help us get us looking more, God, more like God. And I want to say this knowledge. You must ask people who've gone ahead of you. You know, we, we've got wonderful people who have gone before us in this faith. We ought to learn from them, grow in knowledge and understanding in this general sense of how do we get this godly life flowing in these various ways. Well, the next thing Peter says we need to add to our faith or supply to our faith is self-control. <laughs> now, what good is knowledge with self without self-control? You see, we can have all the insight in the world but lack the self-control to implement it. Not so. Because you see, it's only self-control, the application or the implementation of knowledge in a practical way that's going to affect change that results in the godly life in you and me. And what does the Greek mean here? The word self-control means mastery of self. And what a thing that is and how little there is of it today in the world. You see, the Christian is totally different to the unbeliever. The Christian is in a position to control his or her desires because Christ's power is granting them everything that pertains to life and godliness. You have everything you need, my friend, through the supply of the Spirit, these precious and great promises, the very fellowship, the voice of Jesus in your life, teaching you, training you, helping you to resist the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire, Peter says in verse 4. And this means, friends, we are to get to know ourselves. What does it mean in this mastery of self? Well, it means that we get to know and preempt our weaknesses. 
you just have certain areas where you stumble easily. And self-control is to say, I'm not going down that area. I know myself so well that if I open that cupboard or get in, say that thing in that situation or I have this sort of propensity of thoughts that go in a certain direction, you learn that you have a tendency to stumble in certain ways and self-control is going, I'm not going anywhere near that. I'm not even going near the suggestion of it. That is what self-control is. You preempt. You get savvy around the areas of weakness in your life and you refuse to go down those paths. You refuse to be tripped up by the tricks of Satan and the temptations of the flesh. You just avoid certain things, certain ways of speaking. Some of us need to have self-control in our speech more than others. Some of us in our thought life, that our thoughts can have a propensity towards anger or fear or unbelief or, or, or certain temptations. Friends, this is how we are to live. We are to supply our faith with self-control. Oh, in verse five, uh, point five today is we are to supply our faith with endurance. You see, this Greek word is a wonderful word. It means a patient frame of mind. We know as believers, change does not happen overnight. When it comes to changing behavior and character, it takes time. And so friends, today we understand that we have to add Endurance to self-control. In classical Greek, this, this Greek word means to stand your ground, particularly in conflict. That's why the ESV translates it steadfastness. It's no good having self-control but not persisting in it because if we don't persist in self-control, there'll be no lasting change. And I love the way Michael Eaton puts it. He says, this, this thing of endurance that we need to add to our faith, it is the sustained habit of persisting in godliness despite opposition, delays, discouragements, and failure. How true that is, not so? And some of us have started with determination, gained the knowledge, exercised the self-control, but because it's been a lot harder than we thought, or we failed, or we've been disappointed, or we've been tripped up, we've just thrown in the towel. No, no, my friend, this is your opportunity to get back up and get enduring in the areas where God is calling you and empowering you to change. Because it is only in persisting in self-control that change in habits and character happen. And James puts it like this. We are to count it all joy, my brothers, when we face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You will not become perfect nor complete in the Lord unless you exercise steadfastness. Unless in the time of testing when you're exercising self-control, you go on believing. You go on being determined to please God. You refuse to yield to Satan, the world, or the flesh. Because the next thing we are to supply to our faith is godliness. You see, the danger we face is that we can make determination, knowledge, self-control, endurance, ultimately, all about us. I've been trying to think how to explain this, but this is the real danger of you and me, is if we live lives, particularly in certain areas, where we have determination, where we exercise knowledge, we gain knowledge, and we practice self-control, and we endure in that self-control, we steadfast, we can start to do those things simply because we're feeling successful. We feel like we're winning. We feel like we are making progress. And that feeling in and of itself is enough to motivate us to do those four things. But you see, the problem is this. Is that that's really all about us and not really about God. It's all about us and how we feel about ourselves and how it makes us look when we're achieving and succeeding and winning in these certain areas where we were previously weak in character and habits. But you see, that's not the point of what we're doing here. Our orientation, what Peter is saying is, must be God. God senses. And this is a revelation. If you will let it come into your life, your determination, your knowledge, your self-control, and your endurance is not for how it makes you look in the world. It is how it makes God look in the world. And there's a big difference of being motivated by how it makes you feel and look versus how it makes God look and God be glorified. And this is the kind of thing that he's talking about in Godliness. We bring alongside our faith, Godliness. In other words, another thing that Eaton brings out so well, it's cultivating a day-by-day -day consciousness of God. 
You see, the other way of living is we cultivate a day-by-day consciousness of self. Oh, I achieved that goal. Oh, I got this so many steps. Oh, I got so many points. And we become almost transfixed with ourselves. No, Peter says, you need to be delivered from that, my friend. We want to be conscious about God, not about ourselves. And it is deliberately asking, what does God think about this situation or this matter? We want to know what he thinks. We want to do what he wants us to do. Or what about, what does he want me what does he want and what will promote the interests of God's kingdom? That's what Peter's talking here about God in this. It is the, the antithesis of being fixated with self. And this is not automatic. It takes thoughtfulness. And friends, we want to be motivated by the glory of God. Amen. It is the concern for our lives of how our lives make God look, not how our lives make us look. That needs to be our primary motivating concern. You see... Because my seventh and second last point today is this. Is we are to supply our faith with brotherly and sisterly love. Do you see how each attribute is taking you to a higher level of godliness than the one before? You see, and you see, godliness is really the kicker which enables these two highest attributes and qualities to be operating in our lives. You see, without godliness, you will not be interested in loving all, all your brothers and sisters in Christ. It will only be out of a desire to please God that you'll be willing to love brothers and sisters in Christ that you don't like. <laughs> if you are self-centered, if you and I are self-centered in our love, we will only love fellow believers that look like us, sound like us, think like us, and accept us. In other words, we will love according to what can promote advancement and comfort of self. Godliness won't let you do that because if you want to please God, you'll be willing to go after anything. And that in particular here is being willing to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you see what needs to be operating in your life to some degree, it won't be perfect to enable this love of your brothers and sisters in, in Jesus Christ. It requires determination. It requires knowledge, understanding of other people, how they tick of yourself. It requires self-control. It requires endurance. And it requires godliness. It's not easy loving all your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, like your earthly family, you don't get to choose your Christian family. And Peter calls us to love all the saints. Now this is really tough. If you've been in church for some time, you will know that we're all different. We have different outlooks, different backgrounds different temperaments, different understandings, different experiences and habits and nationalities. But you see, we are to be motivated in our faith to love one another. And what happens is, you see, if we're devoted to the fellowship, and that means the big fellowship, our corporate gatherings on Sundays, um, and the little fellowships, which, is our, which are our small group ministries, you're going to be spending a lot of time with Christians. And I guarantee you, because of you spending a lot of time with Christians who are different to you, you will always face the challenge of maintaining unity and peace. Man, oh man. It's sad, but it's true how often our offenses picked up in the church, misunderstandings, differences. We feel strongly about certain things, you know, strongly about certain things that other people differ on. Their disappointments is all sorts of things that disrupt brotherly and sisterly affection and love, that disrupt unity and peace. And Peter says, my brothers and sisters in Christ, do you want to know how far you have gone in godliness? Do you want to know the measure of how godly you are, of how much that previous attribute of godliness is working in your life? It will be how far you're willing to go in extending brotherly and sisterly kindness to Christians you don't like. Perhaps this is a word for someone listening today. You're angry, you're upset, you're offended by a brother or sister in Christ. Friends, how godly are you going to be? What's the measure of your godliness? Well, it will be determined by how far you're willing to forgive and to maintain unity and peace. You see, my last point is this, because ultimately, the highest and greatest attributes or quality 
that we are to bring alongside or supplement our faith in is love. And love comes last because love is the highest and love is the hardest. You see, <laughs> this love, you know, is, it's in the broadest sense possible. How broad? Well, if we are to become partakers of the divine nature, as verse 4 tells us in this first chapter of 2 Peter, partakers of the divine nature, what is the divine nature? The divine nature supremely is characterized by love. God says, God said of himself, God is love. He is love. And it's, it's, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His love went as far and as wide as possible to every human being, regardless of skin color, language, culture, socioeconomic status. It overcomes every single form of prejudice. This is how vast and mighty and almost overwhelmingly broad the love of God is. And that's why Peter says, if you can get this quality operating with your faith, you've achieved the greatest of all. And how humbling it is for us today, not so. Who can look at their lives and say, I have loved everyone perfectly all the time, like God does. Who has shown the quality of love like God has to us? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It's not a pushover or soppy kind of love, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Friends, if you are going to achieve this quality, you need to add to your faith, determination, knowledge, self-control, endurance, kindness, brotherly kindness, because unless these qualities are operating to some degree and to the degree that they operate, you will not be able to love. It enables all, all these things enable love because love is so hard, it's so vast, it's so different to what we know instinctively by nature. The greatest of these is love. And I want to remind us, we have to start with faith in Jesus Christ, but that faith has to work itself out in love. All that matters, Paul says, is faith working itself out in love. Galatians 5 verse 6. And this is the measure of a man or woman's life according to God. See, what we tend to do is measure a person's by their ability and giftedness. Their significance in the kingdom is their spiritual gifting. No, 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 God won't do that. He measures significance in the kingdom by a person's ability to love. And there's a chilling reminder in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all, I have away. And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Friends, what is greatness in the sight of God? It is determined by how great our love is towards all that are before us. What is the measure of your life today before God? It's the measure of how much you can love. What is the greatest representation of his character in the world? It is this divine love operating in the way we think, speak, act, and feel. You see, to work out our faith into love requires every ounce of our being. We are to make every effort in these things, friends. If we are going to unwrap, work out, and see the power of this salvation transforming us. These qualities don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect in self-control before you can love. But you cannot love if you have no self-control. You cannot love if you have no determination. You cannot love if you have no endurance or you have, have no desire for godliness. You cannot love in the way that you're called to love if you will not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what God is after. The transformed life that brings glory to the one we look like. 
in saying all of this, I come back to my first point. If you live like this, you will become a supremely balanced person in Christ. And how we need this balance. I dropped off Sarah briefly this week at ballet. And one of the teachers came out. And she was so defined. I mean, the first thing you just see in this woman is strength. But it's not the strength of a bodybuilder. Forgive me, bodybuilders. I don't mean to be rude today, but really, a bodybuilder looks like a, a conglomeration of pieces of flesh. It's just these huge, overemphasized and inflated areas of the body. This ballet dancer, she had such incredible tone and incredible chiseled features, but it was a kind of strength that she had perfect poise, perfect balance. There was a synergy. There was a wonderful way that all of her parts were in perfect proportion. This is what's on offer to us today, my fellow believer. If you'll not only see what God has done for you, but bring these things into your faith, you will experience what it means to be balanced, poised, consistent, and fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious call this faith has upon us. And we just want to slow down today and say, God, this is the greatest, most wonderful invitation today to live for you. And Lord, what a response it is to give glory to you with our lives, not just with our faith. Oh Lord, we want to be a people that respond to this great gift well by working it out, leaning in all your supply, all your strengthening, oh, but Lord, giving all of our determination to see it work out. And so, Father, we want to thank you for today's message. Pray your blessing upon it. Help us in these days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.